Acts chapter 2 in your Bible today, and uh, the subject is the Acts chapter 2 church, Acts 2 church. And uh, the sub-point is vision killers, vision killers. What is it that kills people's vision after they've been in uh, church for a while? It's all right here. Acts chapter 2. Will you stand with me, please? We begin the reading in verse number 37 today. Acts 2, 37. Now, when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. And they said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said unto them, Repent, and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward or wicked generation. And then... They that gladly received his word. Now, that's salvation. That's when people gladly receive the word, and they act on it, of course. There's salvation. And then followed by baptism and followed by church membership. The same day there were added unto them 3,000 souls. And they continued after their membership steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship with one another, and in breaking of bread, that's the Lord's Supper, and in prayers. Fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. The fear was not a cringing fear. The fear there was an awesome, overwhelming sense of God's working in their midst. In verse 44, they were unselfish. They loved each other so much. All that believed were together, and they had all things common. And they were even selling their possessions and goods and parting or giving them to other people in the church because people had needs, and they wanted to help them meet them. And they continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. Now, that's not the Lord's Supper. That's, that's eating with each other. They did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart and praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. And you may be seated. And last Sunday, I told in great detail about my call to the ministry. My call to the ministry didn't occur one night with some uh, going forward in a church service after an appeal by a preacher or an evangelist. My call to the ministry occurred slowly, sort of imperceptibly over a period of several weeks, maybe two or three months, when a missionary came to the church where I was serving on the staff, and the missionary and I began to have some Bible studies in an old Thompson chain Bible that I showed you the Bible even last week. And there, as we studied the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2 and 3 and 4 and through about chapter 8 or 9, God began to speak to my heart 
about the dream of going somewhere and uh, starting or building an Acts chapter 2 church. And so subsequently, I moved to Florence. And that's been my dream. That's been my vision. That's been my goal ever since then. I have, I have wavered in a lot of things, but I never wavered in that vision. I wanted to establish and lead a church that would look like Acts chapter 2, especially verses 42 through 47, where the people were doing exactly what it describes there and getting the results that are described there. And I thought that's, when I, when I began to study that, as I told you last week, I thought that was the most beautiful institution on the planet. This group of people that had been born again, saved out of their sins, transformed and renewed by the Spirit of God in their life, new creatures in Christ. And these people then go out across that Mediterranean world and the ancient world, and they begin to share Jesus Christ and the gospel, just like that group of people are going this afternoon over here to the racetrack. And they share the wonderful good news that God has sent a Savior to the world. And that that Savior is Jesus Christ. He is our prophet. He is our redeemer. He is our king. He is the one that we love more than life itself. Because were it not for him, there would be no hope. There would only be despair. We would dread the day. We would live every day, no doubt, wondering what will happen after this life. But now we know what will happen after this life. And now we have peace in our heart. Nabil Qureshi, the young Muslim convert to Christianity who's written that book that I've been promoting on Sunday nights, last week was diagnosed with advanced stomach cancer. He's 35 years old, and he's an MD. He is a doctor, so he knows exactly where he stands. And yet, he talks about, yes, I'm concerned, but he talks about the peace that the Lord Jesus Christ has given him because only Jesus can make a way to God. Mohammed can't point you to God. He might give you some ethical principles for your life, but only Jesus Christ is the Savior who can point the way to heaven after this life and give you that assurance. And his testimony is wonderful. Even though it's a critical time, I'm praying for him, and I hope that you will as well. And so I came to Florence with that dream. I was broker than a haint, as the old country boy said. I didn't have as much money as the ghost. And I moved here. Norma was six months pregnant. But we we were chasing a dream, a vision. What is a vision? If you didn't get it last week, I wish you'd write it down. You've got to have a vision too. It's not just for preachers to have dreams and visions. A vision is a dream of a better future, a preferable future. But here's the important part of it that many people miss that produces passion in your heart. It is dreaming about a better future, a better way of life, but it's got to produce passion. If it doesn't produce any passion in you, then it's just, you know, it may end up being a nightmare. 
You won't be holding on to it in a few months if it doesn't produce passion. A vision is a dream of a preferable future that produces passion in your heart. You really love what it represents. And so I thought I'd rehearse that with you. I do it every year or two when I feel like we began to need it. And so Thursday night, we had a deacon's meeting. And what did we do in the deacon's meeting? We had a Bible study. What did we study? Acts chapter 2, the, the, the Acts chapter 2 church. Because sometimes it takes us a number of repetitions to get a hold of something down in our soul. Now, I want you to notice with me what it was like in that church. If you had been there, what was, the, what was going on? What was it like in that church? And in fact, if you want, might want to write these down in the margin of your Bible, and some of them I gave you years ago, but I've revisited them because I can't find a better way to do it. It will serve as a checklist for our church. We can checklist ourselves against what they were doing and make sure that we're on track, can't we? And so, first of all, they were all in one accord. The word is accord. And look in chapter 1 here with me, if you will. And if you look in verse 14, they all continued with one accord. By the way, that's not talking about a Honda. You couldn't even get that many they started with in a Honda, could you? No, it's talking about being of, in unity. It's talking about a singleness of purpose. It's talking about everybody reading off the same page, isn't it? Everybody has the same agenda. That's what it means to be in accord. Boy, did the Holy Spirit emphasize it. Chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all still in one accord. And you go down to verse number 44. They all that, all that believed were together. So they were in unity. The emphasis is unity. In verse 46, again, they continued daily in one accord. It says it for the third time in that chapter. And you go down to verse 47, and uh, God was with them, and the Lord added to the church daily. God blessed them because they had a spirit of unity. And God is never going to bless the church where people are fussing and fighting and feuding. Now, notice with me the second thing, if you had been a member of that church, was their activity. The word is activity, number two. And the primary activity was witnessing. The prim primary activity was not serving on a committee. The primary activity was not holding a position. The primary activity, listen to me, listen, please, <laughs> listen. The primary activity was not attending church and listening to the preacher. The primary activity was listening to the preacher and then going and talking to people about the Lord Jesus Christ. And you see it everywhere. You look in verse 32, for example. God has raised up Jesus whereof we are all, A-double-L, -L, all witnesses. Not the preacher's role alone. It's his role as a Christian, but not because he's a preacher. It's my responsibility to witness as a Christian, as a believer. And it's not just the deacons, but they're failing as deacons if they're not doing it. 
And uh, it's not just the Sunday school teacher's job description. We all, A-double-L, all. And you know why I jump on witnessing so hard all the time. There's nothing that will do more for you as a Christian than to become a witness. You know what? When you start opening your mouth, first of all, you have to live up to it around the people that you open your mouth to. You know that from now on, they're going to be looking at you, and that's going to help you live and walk in the straight and narrow, isn't it? And you know what you're going to find? You're going to find an overwhelming sense of joy in your life because you're doing the thing that pleases the Lord. And the Bible says that he gives the Holy Spirit to them who obey him. Obey him over in a later passage here. And so they had this passion to share the gospel of Christ. And that's why I spent my little time here a few moments ago promoting the racetrack activity. Yes, I'm for the racetrack activity, but I want you to catch the idea that we all are witnesses. You don't hire the pastor and staff to do your witnessing. We all have that same responsibility. And when I witness, I win every time. I win every time. There's only three possible things that can happen when I witness. One, I can talk to somebody and they can receive Christ. That's a win, isn't it? Well, but what if they don't receive Christ, but they receive the gospel or they take my track? I have sowed the seed. That's a win, isn't it? People get a track and three years later read it. Or they read a book. You give them a book. Or they come hear a message and years later they respond. Or you witness to them. And six months from now, they've been thinking about it, and the seed comes to life. Isn't that a win? That's a win. And then, number three, the only other option is they can reject me. No, I don't want your track. No, I'm not ready for that. Is that a win? That's a win, too. Come on, we got to think like the Acts 2 people thought. You know what they said? That's a win when I'm rejected. Because our master told us a few months ago that blessed are you when men shall reject you and when they shall revile you. And you know what? If you turn me down, if you were to spit in my face when I witness to you, you know what you've done? You have just given me a big reward in heaven. Is that a win? That's a win too. And you can't lose with the stuff I use. You can't, that's what, uh, Reverend Ike used to be a preacher on the radio, and that came to my mind every time you'd hear it. You can't lose with the stuff I used. Well, you can't lose with the stuff they used, I tell you that. If you witness for the Lord, you're going to be, you're going to be used of God, and you're going to be blessed. Now, I should be way down my outline, so dinner is going to be late today. But uh, number three, the word is attitude, attitude in verse number 46. They, was, they were characterized by gladness, by gladness. Are you glad? Is the joy of the Lord in your heart? It isn't with some of you. I already know. I can tell. Uh, you, you, just, you just don't have that countenance that the joy of the Lord is there in your heart. But this church was characterized by joy, gladness of heart. And you know what the source of joy is for the Christian 
It's not how I feel or what's happening today. The source of joy is the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, joy. Second mentioned fruit of the Spirit. And joy doesn't mean I'm happy, ha, ha, ha. But joy means there's a deep inner peace and satisfaction that comes from knowing the Lord Jesus. Nabil Qureshi, in his message to people that know him, here's a young man, 35 years of age. He just got his MD degree, and he came to know Christ, I think, 12, 13 years ago. And uh, God is wonderfully using him across the world. And I'm sure there's stress and pain and all that, but you couldn't help but sense the joy of the Lord in his life, even in those circumstances. That was characteristic of them. That was their attitude. That was number three. And number four is the atmosphere. Look in verse 46 and 7. And you see there, they were continuing daily with that unity in the temple, breaking bread from house to house. They ate the meat with gladness and singleness of heart. See, there's that unity again, that singleness of purpose, if you will. Praising God and having favor with all the people. The atmosphere. An old preacher that I used to listen to a lot used to say, atmosphere breeds revival. It's a great statement. Atmosphere breeds revival. And you know what? If our church will always work to have a warm loving atmosphere of compassion, genuine concern for people and that kind of thing. I want to tell you that a loving atmosphere in a Baptist church is as contagious as the flu. Other people will catch it. The world's a cold place today, isn't it? It's a cold place, man. You can go out into the world And it's like nobody cares. Everybody's looking out for themselves. Nobody's concerned. There's not a lot of compassion in a lot of places today. But when you come to the church, I mean, we ought to create an atmosphere, ladies and gentlemen, when people drive up on the parking lot, they can feel the love of God. The atmosphere itself tends to breed a spirit of revival. And then... If you look in verse 47, they had additions. It's the last word. The atmosphere of that church in one accord focused on one activity with an atmosphere of gladness and joy and additions daily, people coming and attracted because they were catching the contagion here, if you will. And it was... And the Lord was the one that added. Note that the Lord added. They didn't add. I can't, I, can't, I can't really ultimately save anybody. I can't change anybody's life. That's the Lord's work, isn't it? The Lord is the one who adds to his church. But listen to me. Here's what I can do. I can create the conditions where the Lord can work. The farmer has to plow the ground. He has to put in the seed. He has to create the conditions. And then he depends upon the Lord for the weather and the water and the warmth. And together there's a great harvest in the future. 
And we can create the conditions. And tragically, God's people in so many places today are not creating the conditions. If I create the conditions and put the seed in the ground, then I believe God will add to his church on a very regular basis. You see it right here. John Adams wrote this in the early days of the country before the country was even formed. A tremendous statement. John Adams says, duties are ours and results are God's. Duties are ours and results are God's. So I do my duty. The church does its duty. And then we leave it up to the Lord. The results are in his hand. Now, that's the, that was the attitude and the activity and the atmosphere of that early Acts chapter 2 church, our dream church. Now, as great as it was, there were problems, though, in that church. As wonderful as it was, there were problems in that church. And they faced those problems that kill Problems that kill the vision of many, many people and churches today. And this group of people faced those problems, and they retained their vision. They kept their vision. And I want to talk to you then the rest of my time about the vision killers. Number one, go over to chapter four now, if you will. And you'll see they hit their first big snag here, chapter four, verse one. And as they spake unto the people, they're preaching, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. And they were grieved that they taught the people and preached that through Jesus, the resurrection from the dead. And they laid, hold, or they laid hands on them and put them in the hold. Now, the hold is the holding tank. It's the jail. These are officials in the city. And because they're preaching Jesus Christ, and especially the resurrection, they lay hands on them, put them in jail until the next day, because it was now late in the evening. Howbeit, many of them which heard the word believed, and the church continued to go on. It did not stop them. Go down to verse 5. It came to pass on the morrow. They're in the holding tank. They're down in Effingham that their rulers and elders and scribes and Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, as many were of the kindred of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they set them in the midst, they said, by what power or by what name have you done this? And Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said, and then he began to tell them the story of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I won't go into that. So they were persecuted. And I don't have time. I wish I could read all the scriptures, but I won't. But here's how the persecution, think with me about this persecution. Number one, the persecution was, the source of it was the government. The source of it was the government. These are all government officials right here. And it begins with a threat. You see that there in the passage that I read. They threatened them, if you will. And then it moved from a threat to jail. And then later on in the chapter, they are beaten. And then in Acts chapter 7, one of the deacons, Stephen by name, is killed. He's stoned to death. 
So it starts as a threat, leads to an arrest, moves then to being physically beaten and punished, and then it moves to actually the killing of Christians for the first time. The first martyr was Stephen. They may have killed Stephen. They didn't kill their vision. Look with me, if you will, at the end of chapter 5, where the whole story has now been told. And you go to chapter 5 and verse number 41. They departed from the council, the presence of the council. Here's the joy again. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple. And in every house, going door to door, I suppose. They ceased not to teach and preach their message, Jesus Christ. You know, as I stand here today in America, there's some pretty ominous clouds rolling around that signals the future storm. In Richland, Washington, you know about the little old lady who had operated a florist shop, and one of her best friends came in. And he was gay, and he wanted her to make the flowers for the wedding. And she said, I'd known him for 20 years or more. And I told him I couldn't, that I loved him, but I couldn't do that. I couldn't give approval to that kind of thing. And he sued her. And the judge awarded a verdict of about $140,000 or $50,000. Because she took that stand. She's a Christian. She did that in the name of Christ. And over in the neighboring state of Oregon, there was a bakery. And a young couple, very attractive young couple, when you look at them on the internet, their pictures there. And somebody walks in and they want a wedding cake baked with two men on it. Being being wed, a marriage. And they said the same thing. We can't do that. We're Christians. And they were fined $132,000 for violating someone's civil rights. Threats. Threats. Becoming very real. In fact, they were going to go into bankruptcy. They had no choice. And across the country on the Internet, Christians began to raise money. And now all that money has been raised for them to pay that fine. God's people have paid their fine. And then down in New Mexico, there's a very attractive young woman. She looks to me to be like 28, 30 years old. Started a little photography shop. Same thing. You've got to take pictures at a gay wedding. I can't do it. And now she's under threat of the courts, the legal system, the source Government persecution, just things just go around and come around, don't they? And here you have it again. Now, for years, our First Amendment rights as Christians have been restricted. You can't pray in certain places. You can't read the Bible in certain places. You're not supposed to do certain things. It's not, it's not that it's not politically correct. It is illegal. It is illegal now. And we read these stories of people defying that. The little girl, the valedictorian down in Texas that the judge said, I'll lock you up. 
And she went to the graduation ceremony and said, if he locks me up, lock me up. But I'm here. I'm telling you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And praise God. There's, there's, there's some of us that feel that strongly about it. Do you know why I tell you those stories sometimes? I'm trying to prepare you. When you see black clouds on the horizon out here and the wind is picking up, a storm is coming. And the signs are that America, our culture, our country that was of God is now rapidly turning against Christianity. Are we going to quit? Are we going to close the doors of the church when they say you can't do, when you can't meet together? No, we're not going to, are we? And that's what happened here. And these people continued on in spite of the intensity of the persecution that came their way. Then over in chapter 5, there's another vision killer. At the beginning of the chapter, a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession that happened to be a piece of land. They kept back part of the price his wife also being in on the deal. And they brought a certain part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. When Peter said, Ananias, why did Satan fill your heart to lie, not to the church, but to the Holy Ghost? Because you said you were going to take all of the price that you got from the land and give it to the Lord's work, and you kept back part of it. That was the lie. It was hypocrisy. I want people to think I'm a better Christian in making this big sacrifice than I really am. While it remains yours, was it not yours? You didn't have to offer to give it all. After it was sold, was it not in your own power? Why have you conceived in your heart this thing and you have not lied to men? You lied to God. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down, gave up the ghost. And great fear came on all them, I guess so, that heard these words. Verse 9, then his wife comes in, and Peter said to her, How is it that you've agreed together to tempt the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of them that buried your husband are at the door, and they're going to carry you out. And she fell down straightway and yielded up the ghost. And the young men came in, found her dead, carrying her out, buried her by her husband. Great fear came upon the church. And upon all that heard it. And so the first vision killer was persecution. Second vision killer is sin in the church. Here are people who are out and out hypocrites. Here are people who are lying to the church, to the leaders of the church, to Peter, but, they're, but most of all, they're lying to the Holy Spirit. And God takes them out. Now, boy, we better be glad he doesn't do that today. We'd empty a lot of pews around America, I'm afraid, wouldn't we? But I think he was setting an example. He was setting a precedent on how important it is that we always deal with him in integrity and purity of heart. And here's the point. These people were leaders in the church. I don't know what positions they held, but they were leaders. They were prominent members of that church. Prominent. Can you imagine the impact then on the church? 
Can you imagine the acute disappointment when a leader fell or when they were gone from their midst? They had so depended upon them. We lose people. It is an acute disappointment to a pastor when you have tried to love people and pour your life into them, and they walk out the door. It, it drives men out of the ministry in many cases. And today, I can tell you, it, it, it hurts the whole congregation. The toughest job I have to do sometimes is to explain why so-and-so is not here, and they left the church. And, and, and most of the time, I can't give a good rational explanation. But you know what? It shouldn't kill our vision. It doesn't change the mission, whether somebody's here or whether they're not. We have to let God deal with people about things like that. That's between him and them, isn't it? And it did not kill their vision. And thirdly, go to chapter 6. In those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplied, the church is growing and everything's well, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians. Now, actually, what is implied here is the Grecian widows against the Hebrew widows. Two different groups of people, the Jewish widows and the, and, and the Gentile widows. And the complaint was that one group was being neglected in the ministry of the church. And so they, there's this undercurrent. You ever been in a Baptist church where there was an undercurrent? Where people are complaining and murmuring and griping about everything that goes on? Sure, you've been there, haven't you? And nothing will kill the vision faster than murmuring and complaining and a negative attitude. Now, the, the complaint was of neglect, and perhaps there was some degree of, of, of uh, neglect. But the real mission of the church is not just to look out for each other. The mission of the church is to get the gospel to every creature, to make disciples. You know, when people turn inward and start looking at each other in Baptist churches, they start murmuring. If you looked at me, you'd find something to complain about. Talk to my wife. And if I looked at you, I just might see an imperfection in you. But we're not supposed to be looking at each other. We are supposed to be keeping our eyes on the Savior and our concern is that lost world out there. Listen to me. 150,000 people a day die and go into eternity. And you didn't come to see me? As one lady famously said recently, what difference does it make? You didn't, I feel a little bit neglected. I know we want to do our best and we don't neglect people here. But in the big, big picture, the mission is not to just care for each other. So many churches, that's all it means. It's all it means, take care of each other. Murmuring. 
You know what's in the, in the text there in Greek that you can't read? They went on Facebook, Instagram. They began to text and email because you can be awful courageous behind that board when you're not talking to anybody, right? You can say things you'd never say to them. They don't even have to be balanced out with truth. Innuendo and rumor and accusation. I'm doing a little preaching today, am I not? I'm tired. Somebody said the other day, Brother Bill's just a good Bible teacher. Okay, today you heard a sermon. He's preaching a little bit. He's plowing up some ground that uh, we need to plow every now and then. Three preachers in the last six months have been to see me with a broken heart. Two of them have already left their churches. And just a little campaign of murmuring is how it started. And now it's not just the preachers left. People have left and churches are all torn up and they're down. See, somebody forgot the mission. The mission is all the world and every creature. Now, by chapter 8, the persecution has intensified so much. Saul was consenting unto the death of Stephen. He helped out with it. And there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all, note the word all. And then notice the last phrase, except the apostles. Everybody was scattered abroad. They left town. The persecution was so great, they scattered Everybody left except the preacher, the apostles, and everybody else was scattered. And you know what? That didn't stop them. They had to move to survive, but in spite of that, they just kept on witnessing and starting churches. And in 300 years, there were more Christians in the Roman Empire than there were pagans. And in the city of Jerusalem, in five years, Josephus said there, were probab- there was probably about 100,000 people in the church because in spite of persecution, in spite of sin and the loss of people, in spite of murmuring and complaining and all those things, guess what? They just kept right on growing and taking Christ to the whole world. Now, turn to the book of Revelation before I quit this morning. Revelation chapter 3. Now, we're going to leave the church of Acts, or Acts chapter 2, and I want to come to the church in the last days. Because in Revelation 2 and 3, there are seven churches named here, and the Holy Spirit speaks to all seven of those churches. And in Revelation chapter 3, he comes to the last of the churches. The last church is at a place called Laodicea, which would be in Turkey today, if you were to go visit Laodicea. And it represents, according to many Bible scholars, the very last phase of church history. This is the last phase, the last chapter. This would be in the modern times. This would be in our day The church in America today, perhaps we could say. And let's see what the angel of the church of the Laodiceans said. He said, these things saith the amen, that's Jesus. 
the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works down there, last day churches. I know you're neither cold or hot. And oh, how I wish you were one or the other. So then because you're, you are lukewarm and not cold and not hot, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. And the vision killer of the last day church is not persecution or sin or murmuring as much as it is apathy, lukewarm, lukewarm, not hot, not cold. And God said, I'm going to spit you out. You're not, I wish that you were hot or I wish that you were cold. Cold is preferable to lukewarm, he said. Strange. You know what apathy is, a lack of emotion, indifference, a state of indifference, nonchalance. I'm told today that it's cool to be apathetic. Well, a lot of people have caught the message in our world today. It's not just the church that deals with apathy. It's employers and business. It's other things that other institutions deal with apathy. You know, I used to think people were either cold or hot. They were either positive in their attitude toward a thing or they were negative. Now I know better. There's a third option. Positive, negative, passive. And if I were to write the one word that describes American Christianity today, I would write passive. Not hot, not cold, not positive, not negative, passive. I don't care. We even have invented a word for it. Whatever. Talk to somebody, whatever. What does that mean? I'm totally indifferent. No big deal. Adrian Rogers said that apathy is the greatest blasphemy. Listen to this. This is good. The greatest blasphemy is lukewarmness. It says, God, I know all about you. And I'm not impressed. I know all about you, but I'm not impressed. Shrug of the shoulders. Adrian Rogers said, you could characterize the church in America today with apostasy in the pulpit, apathy in the pew, anarchy in the street. Isn't that where we are? The truth is not being preached. When it is, there's apathy, and the world is falling around our ears spiritually. What, a, what, a, what an indictment. Lord, I believe, but I'm just not impressed. Now, the causes of apathy are given in verse 17. Basically, they're Selfishness, I live for myself. Worldliness, I'm more involved in the things of the world than I am the things of God. 
and ingratitude. I'm rich and increased with goods. I have nothing. I have need of nothing. You know, our blessing and our success at the Baptist temple sometimes works against us. We have everything. Look at this place. Everything. We gave a missionary Wednesday night $40,000 cash. He carried the check out the door. We've been blessed. And after you go through years of that, it's hard for people to be impressed. Oh, how we need to thank the Lord for his blessing and never, never take it for granted. Adrian Rogers said, lukewarm Christians are the alibi of the sinner. Lukewarm Christians are the alibi of the sinner. Now, I began with a checklist of what it was like in that church. They were all in one accord, singleness of purpose. Everybody bought in. Number two, their activity. They were passionate about getting the gospel of Christ out to the unsaved world. Number three, their attitude was characterized by joy and gladness and positiveness and expectancy, anticipation of what God's going to do next. Atmosphere. They genuinely loved each other. And God blessed them. They created the conditions for additions to the church. Our heads are bowed. Our eyes are closed, please.